Family. We are connected by memory, necessity, problems, and sin. Mother, brother, sister, friend. Where do they start? And we begin. Colorful collections of love and affection, close communities with good intentions. Chasms built on discord and contention, conflicts conjured with dishonorable mention. Book ends at the crossroad of spirit and bone. We are these individuals who share a home. Hello, second service. I'm, don't tell anyone, but you're secretly my favorite one. Okay, uh, the title of the sermon today is Jacks Don't Change Diapers. What? And you'll find out, I promise, it's going to make sense in just a minute. If you have questions about this series, please submit them to info at whchurch.org because the weekend of Thanksgiving, Greg is going to facilitate some question answers about any questions you have through the series. So um, please do that. It'll make it interesting if we get a diversity of questions. And I want to say before I start, thank you so much for your support of The Lift. We had a fundraiser, and we got up a couple weeks ago and talked about it, and we wanted to have 200 donors total over the two weeks, and we got over 200 just from Woodland Hills, and we ended up with 302 donors, and it, was, it made me cry. It was quite amazing. So thank you for being our supporters and prayers and encouragers. All right, and now we are going to turn to the topic of families. This is kind of a rough topic. I know while I was trying to write this sermon, I kind of wanted to crawl under a desk sometimes and then not talk, and because it's hard to dig back into your past, and that's really what we're asking you to do for the purposes of healing. My job today is to talk about both my earthly family and my spiritual family, and the good and the bad of both, and really the intersectionality of those two families and how they worked, can work together for good or for ill. And then we're going to talk about how we get healed or start to heal. I want to say that I did not have a horrific, unbearable childhood. There was a lot of good in my family and in my childhood. And so I'm not pretending to come up here and have a horror story um, I'm coming up here as a person who lives in a broken world and came from, in some ways, a family that had some brokenness, and I believe that we can all be healed no matter what our stories are. There doesn't have to be trauma and abuse in order for there to be impact. As David said last week, nobody has a clean genogram or a family map. We all have stuff, and maybe you don't even know yet what stuff you have or what healing you need, and that's what we want to think about today. Our present is shaped by our past in ways that sometimes take a while to figure out. So let's pray about this conversation. God, be present with us here. You know our stories, and you know what healing needs to take place, and you long to have healthy families and healthy churches. And I just pray that you would do a work here inside each one of us and inside us as a community to help us look more like kingdom people, kingdom families, a kingdom church. And we open ourselves to that task. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, I'm putting up here, I'm letting you in on my uh, hairstyle from 1973. I'm putting it up here on the front. I'm the bottom right, and that, those barrettes are rocking it. This is my family. 
And uh, I'll tell you, my family, I had two parents. Parents stayed married until my dad died about 10 years ago. We were middle class. We were in a small town for a while and then suburban Detroit. And my dad was a professional eight to five dude. And my mom was what they used to call a housewife, which is kind of like being a wife to a house. And since she spent so much time with it, that seems appropriate. She stayed home with all six of us through all of the years. And there was a lot of good in my family. My family was stable. I always had a roof over my head. I always had food. I always had clothing. I had vacation. My dad was super active and really loved um, lakes and water and boats. And so we always had a lot of fun in the summers. And my family uh, embedded Christian values in me. And that's a huge gift. The biggest gift was my mom. I forgot to mention she was wearing a wig in that picture. Um, Because people used to do that a lot. Uh, She was a prayer warrior. She is a prayer warrior, and she would do anything for us. If I called her right now and said, Mom, I I haven't told you, but I've been gambling a lot. I need some money. She would run out in her bathrobe and wire me $500 or whatever. She is on the spot with us, for us, and always has been. She's 85 now, and she still prays for all of us every day. And that's a huge gift of my family. But as with all stories... That's not the whole story. Two main things were difficult in my growing up years in my home life. And first is my dad was really raised without affection or affirmation or compassion. And he passed that along to all of his children. He didn't express interest in my life. He didn't hug me. He didn't say, I love you. He was a sort of scary figure in our house who really just his job was to produce tension. At any moment, things could turn. So I remember wrestling on the floor with him, and it's like, oh, look, we're having a good time, but it's about to go bad, because it always does. So no matter what was happening or how good it felt in the moment, Dad was going to get mad in a minute. Now, he never hit us. He just shamed us, which is uh, almost as bad, and he just made us nervous all the time. And so we were all just waiting for things to blow all the time. And the smallest things could set him off. So I, I was going barefoot, and that just became the unforgivable sin. And here is the really hard part for me of the story is we have eight people in our family, and my dad, uh, when we moved to a new house with a big uh, dining room, got an eight-sided table. And we're each assigned our own side And you couldn't sit anywhere else, even if someone wasn't home. You sat in your space. This went on for like over a decade. And my space was at the left hand of the father, which in some stories is a good space. In this story, not so much. And so I sat next to someone who just produced tension all the time and who was irritated and who commented on my eating and who made me nervous and I could never do anything right and I was using the wrong silverware and I... It was just always a problem. And so mealtime became super stressful. So that was one of the problems in my family, is that my dad was super difficult to live with. The second thing is that in my family, females had a very clear and proscribed role in the world. And my mom, of course, was a housewife, so she fulfilled that role. She cooked and cleaned and did laundry and raised six kids. My dad, through six kids, which spanned, I think, 17 years, Uh, never changed a single diaper, not one. He expected dinner on the table every night at 5.30 when he walked in the door, and he was unhappy if it wasn't there. So I was talking to my mom over this past week, and I'd been calling her a lot and texting her a lot to say, did this really happen? And she confirmed that he never changed a diaper, and then she texted, 
Men didn't do women's work, especially if they were jocks. And I was like, I can't even answer. There's so much wrong with that sentence. Like, what are you talking about? So I thought I would hopefully make a decision tree for us today so that you'll understand how this can work in your family. So the first one is, are you a man? And if the answer is no, you have to change diapers. If the answer is yes, then the next question, of course, is are you a jock? And if the answer is yes, you don't have to change diapers. It gets more cloudy in the middle. If the answer is you're not a jock, then you just get to decide, do I want to or do I not want to? And it can go either way. It, what a, I, it's just a load of nonsense, but it's pretty funny. And I didn't ask her, like, what if a woman is a jock? Because I, I just had to be done. So that's how it was in my family. I don't know about yours, but... Uh, Here's a microcosm. This story is a microcosm of the situation in my home. And it's a funny story, but it's also sort of tragic. My dad did not like milk that was only as cold as the refrigerator. He had to have milk that had been sitting in a glass in the freezer for 10 minutes. Not 9 and not 12. 10 minutes. So the other thing I didn't say about my mom is that my mom was like this. She's like happy and crazy and disorganized and flying all, oh, look, a bird. I mean, she's just not organized. So the idea that every day at 520 she was going to remember to put milk in the freezer is just sad because it's not going to happen. So here's what would happen like half the time. You'd hear her come tearing down the hallway or down the stairs, we forgot the milk. <laughs> and, you know, it's 515 by now, so we have a problem. So she'd put the milk in the freezer, and then we'd all pray that the freezer would get even colder than usual. And then we would sit in tension because we knew what was going to happen, and it did. We sat down at our eight-sided table, and my dad tried his milk, and the milk wasn't cold enough. And then he yelled at my mom for not getting the milk in the freezer. Hey, put your own milk in the freezer. That's what I would have said. But my mom did what apparently women were supposed to do. This is what our life looked like, is if things didn't go the way they were supposed to go, there was just going to be tension all the time. And here I was, number five of six, and I was fighting for attention in the care of a grouchy and demanding dad and a sort of scattered but very loving mom. And here's why this was a problem. As much as my mom was disorganized and didn't like housework and all that stuff, she just loved kids. She's one that like picks babies up out of shopping carts. I mean, she doesn't take them, but she just loves babies. <laughs> she would, it's possible she would. Uh, she just loved babies so much. And so any exchange where she got to stay home with babies and children was gonna work for her. So yeah, I don't like laundry or cooking or cleaning or any of that, but I get to stay home with babies, so I'm gonna do my best at this other stuff. My older sister uh, wanted Nothing more than to take care of a family, to have kids, and to take care of a home and create a hospitable environment. And she's also very organized, and so her house is even clean. But I'm, I'm another story uh, in terms of that whole thing. I couldn't have put words to this as a small child, but I was not looking ahead and thinking how exciting it would be to have the opportunity to clean things and cook things and wash things. It was not there. I, today, like, I'll vacuum half a room, and then I get distracted by, like, a book or something, and then I walk away, and I don't ever vacuum the other half, and also I never put the vacuum cleaner away. So it's just, and I'm not kidding, it's just a sad, sad reality. Um, I drop large objects in the middle of rooms, and uh, I don't pick them up for, like, a few days, and that's just, 
how my life works. And so, but I was, I was trying to be that person. I thought, you know, if I work really hard, I think I can pull this together. So I got married young, and I was striving to be the housewife I was supposed to be. And I was failing miserably. Um, I got married at 20, so you can't judge me too harshly, but I could just make two meals. And the first, I don't know if you could call them meals. The first one was when you take those little tiny hot dogs and you wrap them in a crescent roll out of a pop-open can. We called them pigs in a blanket. That was one meal. Uh, And the second meal was if I would cook spaghetti in a pot and then open a jar and pour spaghetti sauce on. Those are the two meals. I seriously don't remember side dishes. Like, I think that's just all we ate. And I have a uh, recipe book at the bookstore, if any of you are interested in that. The other thing is I had never used a gas stove before, and I do have a sort of rudimentary understanding of science, but I lit a wooden spoon on fire like three times a week. Uh, on the stove, because I would get distracted. There are more interesting things. And so then we start, we put a vase in the middle of the table, and we um, collected the burned spoons in it, and that became like a centerpiece. So that was kind of cool. Wish I had a picture. Um, Okay, so I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Four brothers and my sister and me We were raised in a place where my four brothers had any kind of option of anything they wanted to do in terms of school and profession, and they were four very different people. And then we had my two sisters, I mean, my one sister and me over here, and we had one option, and we were two very different people. But that's just the way it was. Then the one option was that we were going to stay home and be domestic. And my world was a really harsh judge of women who didn't conform. This is a true and tragic story. I had a friend in my neighborhood who was a couple years younger. She was just kind of an acquaintance friend, and she, uh, when she was 20, she committed suicide. And I was about 22, and I remember gathering with the family, and somebody said, well, you know, her mom went back to work full-time when she was a teenager. And they, they really meant that's... This is the cause and effect. She went back to work. Her daughter committed suicide. And when you're 22 and someone says that, you think, well, I, I didn't know it was that bad. Like, that's what, this is what's going to happen if you try to go to work. So this cemented further, you cannot get out of the straitjacket that you are in. When women don't do what they're supposed to do, bad things happen. I never saw a professional woman other than a school teacher. I never saw a full-time working mom. And as my mom said, my dad was a jock, and so we didn't even get to have sports taught to us because the four brothers learned how to throw and catch and hit and all of that stuff, and we were housewiving or practicing, I don't know, being mentored in housewiving, is that a thing? Um, The thing to be in my family if you wanted attention was a boy. If you wanted to be invested in, you needed to be a boy, and I couldn't be that. Otherwise, you were just kind of taking up space. And, to add to that, the thing to be in my church, if you wanted to be noticed or important, was a boy. I've spoken about this church before. It was a fundamentalist Baptist church, very conservative, focused on control and shame and what you couldn't do. And there was a list of words uh, that were considered swear words because that's an important work of the church is to list any possible thing you could say that might be a swear word. So I remember the one, cheese and crackers, because apparently that's like saying Jesus Christ. 
And so you couldn't say, cheese and crackers, which who does anyway? Like, why do we even need a list of this? Someone in the first service yelled out, cheese and rice, which also sounds more like it, but who eats cheese and rice? I mean, that's just, why are we wasting our time on this? But this is the church I went to. The visiting evangelist told the ushers to close the doors because he had a word from God, which is, women can't wear pants. So you can't say cheese and crackers, and if you're a woman, you can't wear pants. That's what I got out of my church. So I thought, well, I should have some good parts about the church because you're supposed to do that. And so I thought a lot, uh, and I thought, well, uh, I learned the Bible, which is huge. Um, It's really important to know what's in the Bible and to memorize verses. I went to Awana. I didn't agree, uh, or I don't agree now, with how those verses necessarily were interpreted, but I learned them, and so I have that foundation, and that's really good. The second thing is our annual church picnic was super fun. So one time a year, we got to have a good time with the church. It wasn't that good a time, really, but I had to come up with something. Okay, but there were some hard parts about the church, and here I think you'll see the theme. The first hard thing about the church is that women had a very limited role and certainly couldn't be leaders. And the second thing is that the church was a culture of shame. And we, always, we got a very clear picture of God the Father who was always mad at us for something. And that lined up so well with my earthly father who was always mad about something as well. So both my dad and God the Father produced a lot of tension. And at home, dad is mad if you break something or go barefoot or bring dirt in the house or drink the last Fago pop or ask to borrow the car. Dad's mad. And at church, heavenly dad is mad if you say cheese and crackers, wear the wrong thing, play cards, dance, listen to rock music, or hang out with people who believe differently. So it was so easy. Everywhere there were landmines. Either heavenly dad or earthly dad are going to be mad, and a lot of times both of them at the same time. I had grouchy men everywhere. They were all in charge. They were pastors, teachers, preachers, elders, deacons. They were trustees. They were God the Father. They took the offering and served communion. They reminded me that I had a place and I needed to stay in it. Women, on the other hand, in my church worked in the nursery with children. Never saw a man in there. They did the dishes after communion and after church potlucks. They sang and they could teach small children using flannel graph. But if you know what flannel graph, a little, yeah. Um, If you were too old to be taught by flannel graph, then you were too old to be taught by a woman. So that was my church. And for some women, this was just fine because it's what they'd always known and it fit well with their desires and talents. And for some women, this was a bad situation because there was no wiggle room. What if you were a woman and a gifted teacher and the only thing you could do was teach flannel graph to small children, which you may or may not really get into being around, I mean, there just wasn't anything. And if you were a woman who worked outside the home, then people would talk. So this was my one-two punch, a family and a church where the person that I was made to be had no place. And here I am on the screen in first grade. It kind of makes me cry a little bit. Um, I'm a mostly loved, mostly privileged wearing a kicking outfit, I have to say. (laughs) Mostly fortunate, but also a girl who couldn't find a place in this boy's or man's world and who needed stuff from her father that he couldn't or wouldn't provide. 
And I grew into a picture of God who seemed very much like my dad. And I look at that picture and other ones when I was little and I just think what, what it would have been if someone would have come around and recognized who I was and nurtured that. And there wasn't any of that and I feel bad for her. And even if your story isn't something horrific involving trauma and abuse and neglect, you likely still have things to heal from. You likely still have that little first grade person who needed stuff that they weren't getting. And for me, the whole world was colluding to make sure I stayed in the place they made for me. And I arrived in adulthood with a vision of my life as a wife and a mother and a homemaker, but I had the secret vision of myself as a world-changing leader who was educated and had something to say, who was going to change the world for real. And after marrying at 20, these two visions competed with each other for over a decade, even as I was having children and setting wooden spoons on fire. My life was a competition between what I thought I was supposed to do and what I wanted to do. And I couldn't step out for fear that becoming a working mother would result in my children being irreparably harmed because that was the very clear message. And in the vision of God that I was taught, grouchy God the Father always want you to do, wants you to do the very thing you don't want to do. And so I tried to settle in. He wanted me to be domestic, or in my case, I think domesticated, um, and it wasn't just like if your mom wants you to go to law school. This was like the God of the universe telling me I have to cook dinner. So imagine like if you're terrible at a subject in school and for your whole life, everybody around you, including God, said you, you have to be a mathematician. That's the thing you're going to be. And that's all you've heard your whole life. And you're thinking inside, I don't like math. That's what you're going to be because God is grouchy. That's what it felt like. I mostly did it for a decade, and we went to some churches that were less shaming, but still not empowering for women. And I really, I love, loved, I say loved my kids, I still love them, <laughs> but now they're grown, and they're, uh, my son is in his uh, 20s, upper 20s, and he uh, tells a story that I have no recollection of, but this will just tell you how ill-suited I was for this uh, kind of life, because he... He loved Playmobil, he's very creative, and the little Playmobil, plastic people, and he wanted to make a whole, whole worlds. I mean, he had whole worlds, and he would film them, and he had a very complex thing going on. One of the things he wanted to do was have me pretend with him, which I, made me want to fall asleep on the carpeting. I mean, that's just why, like, please, my gosh, here come the Playmobil. So then the Playmobil would come out, and he tells the story of, uh, he had little uh, horses and people riding them, and I'm embarrassed to say guns, which I would never, they were tiny guns, but still, I wouldn't do that. So we were going to have a battle, and then, so the first, his little person would ride out, and then I would just go ahead and shoot him dead, um, and then the next person, boom, and then I would just go and shoot everybody, because then I could be done pretending. <laughs> I don't remember this. I think he might be making it up. But clearly, just so ill-suited. So, but the, he's fine, by the way. He's over, he's over here, and he's fine. Okay. So we moved to Minnesota when the kids were four and seven. We came to Woodland Hills, and for the first time, I was in a place where I didn't feel like I had to hide behind the scenes. I went back to school when my kids were young and we did homework together and then I went to seminary and I started coming alive and realized I had options. And in fact, 20 years ago in 1998, I was the first woman to preach at Woodland Hills Church, which is cool, thank you. And 
the first time I, I ever preached was at Woodland Hills, which is kind of weird because you usually start, you know, with a small room. So that was cool. And also, I was the first woman I ever heard preach. So this was kind of a cool situation in retrospect. I read a whole ton of books about women in the church and home and found out that there's different ways to look at verses and I could do things my church said I couldn't. So I got up here and, and preached and you know what happened when I got up here and preached? Oh, men came up to me and gave me slips of paper or gave me little sermons about how I was sinning by preaching. Yeah, because I was apparently a trailblazer and so I had to get shot at a little bit. Um, so that was super helpful. I'd spent so many years trying to get out of this cage that was created for me only to have men come up and say to me, get back in your cage, honey. It didn't make me happy. But despite that, <laughs> through all of this, the work of healing was happening related to my dad and to God and learning to be okay with and even celebrate who I am. But I had to deal with some anger. As we all know, when we start bringing up stuff from the past, we bring the anger forward and then we move into forgiveness. And I had some really healing moments with my dad before he passed away almost 10 years ago. And one of them was here at Woodland Hills. My parents were in town from Michigan and I was preaching. This was over at Arlington. And, um, you know, so I was preaching and my parents were here who raised me in the church where women couldn't do anything and a home where women couldn't do anything. And I thought, well, this is going to be super cool. We'll see what happens. So they were in the second row, and I was like, look, everybody, here's my parents from Michigan. And then everybody clapped, which my dad really liked. Um, and then I preached, and then my dad went to get the minivan and was waiting for us. And then I talked to some people, and I went out in the minivan, and I got in, and he turned around to me and he said, that was amazing. You were doing exactly what you were made to do. And... <laughs> It was so, so odd and so shocking and so affirming. But it's like, wait a minute. What was that all about? What has the last 40 years or whatever been all about? I'm so unclear at how we arrived at this moment. But then, rather than asking him that, I just decided to take the good and let it go because that's what you got to do. So, how do we get healed? When I was 17... I left my church that I'd grown up in and I found my own church. And I want to say that that's just okay to leave your church, except if it's Woodland Hills, then you can't. But if you, it's okay to find a new church family if the one you're in isn't loving. You can't leave because people are irritating because they are everywhere. But, and you don't want to leave because you're running away from something like accountability. You want to leave because you're running toward something, which is to find a healthy whole community of loving people. That's okay. So that, for some people, that gets them going in a right direction toward healing because you get away from a shaming church. If you're raised in a shaming, unhealthy, unloving family, the likelihood that you're going to land in a shaming, unhealthy, unloving church is quite high. So the first step sometimes is just to get out of that family. But I think the wounds in our earthly families are deeper because they start much younger. And so let's focus on that. And I want to say that the work of healing is different for everyone. You all have different stories that may or may not intersect with mine in any way. And that many of your stories are much more difficult. But here's what I want to say as we think about healing. God wants to heal you. You matter. And your story matters. And I don't care if you're 88 years old or 98. God wants to heal you. 
It's a journey that's worth taking, even though it can be difficult. And I know he wants to heal you because he says it in the scripture. In Matthew, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In Isaiah, looking ahead to the Messiah, to Jesus, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. In Psalm 147, feel this. Praise the Lord, how good it is to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. This is not just like Sandra or your husband or wife or Uncle Tom want you to be healed, although I hope they do. This is that the God of the universe that names the stars and has understanding beyond measure and is powerful. This God, this is the one that wants to heal you. He wants to bring that power to bear and that love to bear and that gentleness to bear to bring you to a new place. So I'm going to leave you with five things, five ideas I'd call them about healing. Some are just thoughts, new ways of thinking about things, and some are actions that you can take. And all of them could be their own sermon. But we're going to touch on them and then you can do some work on your own to say, where do I start? If you're suffering from unresolved brokenness or trauma, I just encourage you to take a step. And the first step, I think, often is just to tell your story to someone. Because when we stuff our hurts in, sometimes it's because we're afraid they're true. And when we go to a trusted friend and we reveal those and say them out loud, and then our friend says, that was not okay, Just that is hugely healing because we're afraid somehow that we are at fault for the shame that we were given. We're at fault for what happened in our family. And so just to have a supportive, loving friend say, that was not okay. It's like, really? It was not okay. It really wasn't okay. It happened to me this week in a kind of small way. I was talking through the sermon, the ideas with my husband, um, the wooden spoon burning. Oh, no, that was me. The husband, 32 years, and I was kind of treading lightly because I don't, you know, I had a loving mother. I don't have some horror story, and I didn't want to pretend and get up here and whine and all that, and so I was treading lightly, and I know I had it good in a lot of ways, and my husband said, what happened to you was harmful, and it was not okay, And you have to believe that and say that and preach that because we're all here together recognizing that we all come from different piles of crap and some are big and some are small and none of them were okay. And he allowed me to say what happened to me was not okay and what happened to you was not okay even if you think it was small or inconsequential. So find a place to say your truth. In 1 Peter 3.8, Peter says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So imagine if you could actually process your pain in a place where people were like-minded and sympathetic and humble and loved you. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
And of course, Peter is talking to the church. This is us. This is what we're called to. So when you're in a growth group, what you're providing to people who are sharing their pain is like-mindedness and sympathy and love and compassion and humility. This is what we're called to. Wouldn't it be amazing if everybody in the church experienced this? If we were responsive to this call to be those things for each other? Now, you may be able to talk to a friend or friends and work through your stuff. Some of you have a really big pile of stuff, and you may need professional, like a therapist or counselor. And those things are okay. Because here's what happens if you don't do that. You think, oh, I want to be healed. I'm going to join a growth group. And then you go and you bring the bag of stuff that you are carrying in your life into the growth group, and you sit in a circle, and then you pick up your bag, and you throw it in the middle of the circle. Here! And then everyone goes, ah, because nobody knows what to do with your pile of stuff. And then three weeks later, the group ends. <laughs> Don't do that. If you have stuff around abuse and trauma, go get help. And then it can be a great combination of a counselor who's working through deep inner healing and a community that surrounds you and loves you. It's just a great combination. So if you don't know which one you need, you probably need the counselor. <laughs> so be courageous and tell your story to someone. I know it's a risk, but I think you'll be super excited after you do it. Second thing, have a boundary. There's a lot of confusion about what a boundary is and is not. Some people think it means, oh, if you have a boundary, you don't care about people, you don't help people, you're not generous, you don't forgive people. That's silly. If you've ever said no to someone, you've enforced a boundary. That's all we mean by boundaries. So I'll list a few examples. When your friend wants you to cover for her and lie, you say no. You say no when your alcoholic relative wants money for alcohol. You walk away when people are gossiping and saying racist things. You say, I'm, I'm not going to be here for this. You create physical space between you and someone who is being abusive. And you set aside time each week to meet with your faith community, and you protect that time. That's a boundary. These boundaries help us create space around ourselves, create space where God can dwell and work. We can become the people that he wants us to be. We can help manifest his kingdom when we're healthy with our boundaries. And Jesus modeled this. He withdrew from crowds to pray. He said no to Herod's demand to show a sign that you're the son of God. He turned over tables in the temple because the money changers were using it in a way it wasn't supposed to be and they were hurting the poor. So when we, taught, we teach boundaries to our plaza staff, I know you were wondering, but no, I'm not gonna hula hoop. So here's, here's what we do when we teach them. We, we use a hula hoop and some other things as an example. And we might say, okay, we're going to protect our mind. And we're not going to watch certain things because they put icky things in our mind. And we're not going to listen when people say things that are offensive. And we protect our mind. And then we say, we protect our heart by saying, you don't get to talk to me that way and treat me that way and make me feel shame. And we protect our body and we say, you don't get to physically abuse me and hit me. And so we use this as an example so if your family's not safe, you decide how close they can get to you and when. And some people might be invited into your hula hoop. You know who's a good person to invite into your hula hoop? Jesus, you can invite him in your heart and your hula hoop. And I strongly recommend that you do both of those things. I like this hula hoop metaphor because it allows us to still 
take in the world around us, to be fully present while still recognizing that there's times we need to protect ourselves. It's also flexible, so we can't ram people with it. Um, when we do this with our kids in, at the plaza, we have a hula hoop that's covered with barbed wire. So, right, so you've known people, like, ooh, I got, I got too close to that and just got burned. And that's not about you, that's about the person who feels like they have to have a barbed wire boundary because of things that have happened. We use uh, a piece of yarn, so it doesn't help them with anything. They try to hold it up and put it around them, and they don't have any way of protecting themselves. And then we use one of those kids' tunnels where it covers you from head to foot, and nobody can see you and no one can get you. And this is the kind of boundary we build when we've been wounded. So when it comes to family, we have to love them, but we also have to decide where they are in relation to our hula hoop. But we can't use our hula hoop to keep Jesus away because he just keeps trying. All right, so tell your story to someone. Have some boundaries. Third, bring Jesus into your story. So when I moved here, I met someone who gave me a book called Healing the Eight Stages of Life. And it helped take you through different stages of life where you may have been wounded or uh, traumatized in some way, and then take Jesus into those and see what healing he can bring. And so I did something with imaginative prayer that looked like this. I invited Jesus to stand behind my dad and me at the table, at the eight-sided table. And he stood there and gave commentary. And he said, boy, it, sounds, it seems really uh, tense in here. And I'm sorry your dad keeps picking on you. I wish that he would show some care and concern for you and how your day was. And you know what? I don't like pigs and blankets either, so you could just leave that sitting on the table. So Jesus had a lot of things to say about what was going on at my table. And he made me understand through this that the way my dad behaved is not the best. And so then the next thing we did was we had my dad get up and leave, and Jesus sat down in his spot. And when Jesus sat down in his spot, he turned to me and he said, I am so lucky that I get to sit next to you for every meal. And then he said, what was your best thing that happened today? And how did you do on your math test? And you know what, it's okay that you spilled your milk because even I do that sometimes. And he became a voice of a father that I never had. And ever since then, I can hear the voice of Jesus over the voice of my shaming dad. And that's powerful healing. And for some of you, especially us right brain types, we can just do all kinds of fun things in our head and it can bring healing. And I just encourage you and invite Jesus into those scenes. So tell your story, work on boundaries, bring Jesus into it, and then make a choice to forgive. <clears throat> and, the, you know, forgiveness is like a five-minute sermon, right? No, it's like a five-year ser- series. But I just want to tell you one of the huge things that changed how I think about forgiveness and that is that we don't heal in order to forgive. We forgive in order to heal. So, yep. So what this means for you is if you're standing around waiting for your dad to say, I'm sorry I wasn't a very good dad, and then you'll be like, oh good, I'm healed now. That's not going to happen. Jesus tells you to forgive And so you make that active choice to forgive. And I've found for me that as soon as I release that, say, I'm not going to punish you anymore, Dad, for not being very nice to me, then the healing really begins. It opens up that possibility. So you've got to get that in the right order because I've known people that have gone forever waiting for that moment of healing so they can forgive. And really, you just got to make that 
self-discipline choice right off the bat. Forgiveness is about me, not the person who wronged me. It's about my health, not theirs. It's also something that Jesus demands us to do, commands us to do, because he knows. And this is what he says about it in Matthew when Peter asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Wouldn't that be generous? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus did not say, well, it depends what they did. And he didn't say, well, did they apologize yet? He didn't say those things. He just said, forgive them 77 times. And when we have Jesus in our hula hoop with us, it helps us be able to do that. We also need to remember that forgiveness doesn't mean we jump right back into things. If someone has been lying to us, if someone's been physically or emotionally abusive to us, we're not going to forgive them and then be like, oh, let's be best friends again. You're going to forgive and you may work toward healing, which may or may not happen fully, but you can forgive and release them and then you just may need to go your separate ways and that's okay as long as you're not letting that unforgiveness eat away at you. You need to forgive. So tell your story, have a boundary, Bring Jesus into your story. Make a choice to forgive. And then I'm going to leave you with a holiday, a holiday message, which is that you need to be wise this holiday season. This one is for Thanksgiving dinner specifically. When I spoke here last time, I talked about how in the 70s they started teaching uh, an easier way to learn tennis. It used to be too complex. And then they started just saying, hey, here's a thing. Look at the ball and say, bounce hit. So we're going to throw a ball over the net at you, and then you're going to go bounce hit, and you're going to hit it. And for whatever reason, this very simple thing made it much easier for people to learn to play tennis. And so we talked about how in the Christian world, that can be a metaphor for us saying, I'm just going to love and forgive, love and forgive, love and forgive, love and forgive. That's all I'm going to remember today. So on Thanksgiving, when you go in and some of the old hurts and pain come back to you, you're just going to say, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. Because the reality is a lot of us go into those dinners and we think, oh, I hope my mom says this and I hope my dad doesn't say this. And we set ourselves up for such disappointment because if for 30 years mom has been saying that and dad hasn't been saying that, then it's probably not going to change today. So let's not go in with those expectations. Let's just go in and say, my job here, I have other, I have other friends, I have other stuff. My job here in this family is to love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. We're not going to judge we're not going to talk about past hurts. We're not going to get digs in. We're not going to discuss uh, politics and religion. I have, <laughs> this is my favorite meme about politics. Uh, wow, your Facebook post about politics has changed my mind and my vote. Said no one ever. And it's not going to be any different at Thanksgiving. No one ever. So here's what we're going to do instead. We're going to love and forgive and love and forgive. And here's the other thing. If your family has caused you a ton of pain, they're probably not going to be the ones to heal you, to help heal you of that pain. They're going to not walk through that healing process. That's going to be somewhere else. That's going to be your community, your growth group, your church. But it's not going to be your family. And just knowing that can help you just release your family from that over the holidays and just go in and you just... Keep your eye on the prize and you say, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. This is the thing I'm bringing today. And when your mom says, can you bring a turkey? You say, no, I'm bringing love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness, love and forgiveness. <laughs> That's what I'd say. Okay. 
We can do this. Let's get healed. Let's think seriously about our families. Let's love and forgive them. Let's build spiritual families that can fill in some of those holes that our earthly family left. Let's do it, and let's pray for that. God, bring healing here. We all need it. Lord knows we all need it. We need your power because we can't heal ourselves. We need friends around us. And so I pray that growth groups and any groups here, friend groups, whatever, are coming together and saying, let's get healed. And let's be Jesus to one another. And let's be compassionate and kind. And let's be like-minded and humble. And let's grow together. And let's look more like Jesus. And let's heal And we need you for that. And I pray these things in the healing and strong and powerful and compassionate name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Come forward for prayer.